we'll never be a commodity developer. We'll never be a four over one stucco white vinyl window developer. It's not where my passion lies. And it's taken me a long time to get to this point in my career. And I try to never lose sight of how fortunate I am to be able to work on projects that I have passion for. And it wasn't always like that. I was doing open air shopping centers. I was doing 200 acre master plan subdivisions in the Northeast of Denver. And uh, I think the takeaway is patience, right? Have patience, allow yourself to learn your craft, but really never lose sight of what is your passion. Welcome to the Developing Leadership Podcast hosted by NAOP Colorado. This is a monthly podcast series that we host with business leaders and entrepreneurs within the Colorado commercial real estate community. Tune in to today's episode. Welcome to the February installment of the Spotlight Speaker Series. We're super thrilled to have Reese Dugan of Robesco here with us. We just want to kick this off at the top, um, do some housekeeping. You know, food is back there, drinks are in the corner, restrooms are just around here. And then, you know, kicking it off, we'd like to thank our 23 DL program major sponsors, First American Title and Essex Financial Group, as well as Barron Properties. So thank you so much for supporting this organization. And guys, this is a great turnout. It's, it's really good to see you back here. I know January is a little slow getting out of the holidays, but it's good to see everyone invested. And we're really looking forward to all the incredible planning that the committees are putting together throughout the year. Can't wait to get into summer season and, and cocktail season with you all. So just some housekeeping here. We got some pretty cool events coming up. Here are a couple target dates. Um, we're looking at the 9th, March 9th for the next Spotlight. And then the upcoming calendar of events, February 16th, Real Estate on the Rocks at the AMP. That should be a really good uh, showing, great event. And then February 23rd, the annual Awards of Achievement, which, which Jayma and team have been working so hard on, member of the year, all this good stuff. And then to all your peers, DL Mentor Group opens up. We're going to open that up March 1st. So please encourage leaders and people who want to be more invested in commercial real estate to apply and get, get them uh, plugged into the network. Let's see, we got uh, March 1st, Nayap Oma Apartment Association. Check your phones. <laughs> and then uh, something we're really excited about, one of our Hallmark events, the DL Winter Classic Series with Icons at A Basin. April 13th, Capital Markets Town Hall. And then April 27th, Real Estate on the Rocks featuring the Ripper Mile and Reese Dugan. Super exciting uh, site. And then May 11th, uh, South Broadway Country Club Real Estate on the Rocks. So, so far, first like, you know, half of the year is looking really good. And we just got incredible stuff that is being planned in the long horizon, too. So let's, uh, let's run through DL subcommittee highlights. We kind of want to like just do this really quick bullet point so you guys can see what's going on. See if you want to get involved in a specific committee and just hear about all the cool stuff that people are working on. So, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Reese Dugan. He's president and CEO, managing partner with Rubesco Properties, a local real estate investment and management firm, and is also the master developer of the 62-acre River Mile project. So, Reese, take a second to introduce yourself and let us know about Rubesco. Matt and I were just talking. We've come full circle. Matt was my mentee in That's the right. NAOP mentorship program. So it's really great to be up here with him. And it just reminds me how valuable this program is like you and i keep in touch all the time all the time right yeah. here in my office we're bouncing ideas off each other and i'm peddling ideas by reese <laughs> <laughs> so it's really great it's really awesome to be up here but 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to this chat. Can't believe the turnout. For me personally, it's just great to be back in person again. I just, I feel I can't operate on Zoom very well. It just, there's something disconnected about it for me. So I'm super excited that we're all back in a room and hopefully that just continues to grow. So, yeah. um, yeah, I'm, you know, Matt gave me some notes and we're just going to have a conversation and a lot about how I got here and kind of my journey and my journey is probably not a typical one, but I'm super happy to share it with you. And yeah, I'm super casual. So if anyone wants to stick their hand up and interrupt and come on up and ask a question, I think that's the best way to go on this one. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kick it off. You know, what, Reese, what's your, what's your origin story and like yeah. share your career path. I think it's a really interesting yeah. story. Well, behind me is Vancouver. That's where I grew up. Great place to grow up. But I grew up in Vancouver at a time, the time that Vancouver was really turning the corner from this kind of small West Coast Canadian city into this international, internationally desirable place that it is today. And I kind of feel fortunate, especially as it relates to our business, right? To see that happen in real time all around you and watch a city transform, for me, was super impactful mm-hmm. and got me excited about about this business, about development. You can see from this slide, um, yeah, it's a pretty vertical city. Who's been to Vancouver in this room? Pretty good. For those of you who haven't, highly recommend it. It's a two hour and 45 minute direct flight and you don't need a car. It's super walkable. You can just land and be there and exist and take it all in and watch how that city developed. It's really, really impressive. And, and you'll see a lot of stuff in the River Mile slides that might remind you a lot this slide. Um, but uh, growing up there, we uh, really the turning point for Vancouver was when we hosted the World's Fair in 1986 Expo, as it was called. And it was on a site right downtown on the water, right adjacent to our sports stadiums, right by light rail. A lot of the a lot of the conditions that I use to describe the river mile, right? Right, right on the river, density, sports stadiums, light rail stops. Yeah. And so that was kind of as I watched that develop once the fair closed. And left in 86, that site got sold to a Hong Kong developer. And it became kind of the catalyst for a lot of the new tower growth uh, in Vancouver. And so my last place I lived in Vancouver was right around the Expo lands. And to watch that develop and to watch the impact of that private sector development on a city was really catalytic for me. And private sector development, but also interspersed with all the amenities that a city needs, that a community needs, whether it's a recreation center, whether it's daycare, whether it's preschools, elementary schools, grocery stores, retail, et cetera. Like I said, that was very impactful. And and and, and we'll talk about the similarities in the River Mile um, once we get there. But yeah, I took a path that was pretty untraditional. I didn't have any role models in my family. My dad was a pot-smoking hippie <laughs> college professor. <laughs> an English professor. My mom worked for the post office and not a lot of business sense between the two of them combined. So I don't know where I got mine from. Maybe I just picked it up along the way. But yeah, really untraditional. Got a uh, got an undergrad uh, in political science. Really was intrigued by development, mostly because there was this really cool guy that built houses on the waterfront in Vancouver and he, and he drove a Ferrari. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Who doesn't want to do that? Yeah. Right. And then, so once I got my undergrad, I went out to Harvard, did a summer session they have called Career Discovery out there in the Graduate School of Design. My instructor there heckled me when he first saw my first drawing. He's like, you might think about public policy. 
this policy <laughs> side of planning and architecture because I cannot draw to save my life. Right? <laughs> Little plug for policy. Go yeah, policy. Yeah. But that was really fascinating to be at the GSD around all these smart minds and creative people in the architecture world. Mm. And that kind of lit the fire for me. And from there, I knew I wasn't going to be an architect because I didn't have any skills of drawing. But um started my MBA at the University of Calgary and dropped out after the first semester because I was really kind of excited to get out into the world and start doing things instead of learning things in a formal academic setting. And um that was really an instrumental decision. I landed back in Vancouver, <clears throat> was walking down the street. I know the street corner that this happened on because my office now in Vancouver is literally across the street from where this happened. I bumped into this guy who I knew socially, who was the mayor of this community in Vancouver. And he said, hey, what are you doing? I go, literally nothing. I literally <laughs> just got back to town, dropped out of my MBA program. So I got lots of time. And he goes, well, come to work for me. I'm like, cool. I got a political science degree. That's about the only application I could think of for someone with a political science degree. And, uh, so I went to work for the, as the assistant to the mayor and the city manager in this part of Vancouver. And fascinating, right? I love, this is what I love about our business. Everyone comes to this business from a different discipline, right? Whether it's architecture or engineering or finance or brokerage or legal or accounting, I just happen to come at it from um, the entitlement world, from the public sector world. And, uh, you know, thinking about my first project, my first big project was an overhaul of the city's entitlement process. I had no idea what I was, absolutely no <laughs> clue. But, you know, you pick up things along the way and you learn. So I learned that process really, really well. Learned the art of public consultation, learned the art of compromise, learned the art of straddling kind of the, the private sector and the public sector bureaucrat world. And, um, you know, one of our talking points that we were going to talk about was one of my mentors and hmm. that was definitely the mayor who I worked for and learning that world. And uh, just being in the room for meetings, right? When you're younger in your career, just having access, I think, is so important, right? To be in those big meetings. Not that you might contribute or might not contribute. It's just being in the room and soaking it up, like how the power dynamic works, how relationships work, when to push, when to pull, when to sit still. So a lot of learning went into that. And then when you're young, it's funny, right? Time has a different cadence to it. I was in that job for a few years and I'm like, God, I got to get out of here. I'm falling behind. I'm falling behind. So I went, uh, my, my mayor boss gave me a promotion and I went to run. British Columbia was in a period and is still in a period of actually negotiating land claim uh, settlements and treaties with their Indian First Nations, as they call them there. So really, really contentious topic at the time, especially there were five Indian bands or first nations in Vancouver that claimed all of the city of Vancouver as their traditional territory, right? So how do you reconcile that? You're in the middle of a city yet you've got these underlying land claims where people who say, we own all this, that you think you own, we actually own it all. And so I went and represented 32 cities in the Metro Vancouver region in those negotiations with the federal government, the provincial government the First Nations governments, and then I was representing the local governments. Fascinating, right? Again, a lot of land use issues, right? What if the First Nations own that site right beside you and they don't have any zoning, right? They don't have any obligations. They can build a slaughterhouse. They can build a munitions factory mm -hmm. or whatever. 
And so a lot of self-government issues, a lot of development issues that were fascinating, but also really heavily laden with politics. And I was reporting to 32 mayors and 32 city managers. And I think that was probably as important as the issues was learning to navigate in that world. Again, when to push, when to pull, when to shut up. And so that was my early government days. And I think for those of you who may have started in government, I always advise if you want to get out, get out early, because if you don't, you kind of get stuck and you get pigeonholed. And, and I got out and I went to work for a private sector developer, a billionaire family private company that had a 1.1 million square foot shopping center that happened to be half located on city land and half located on Indian land. Literally the boundary went right down the middle. And so we were doing a big redevelopment, a big mixed use town center, Home Depot anchored development. Think about trying to jam a Home Depot into Cherry Hills. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was. But we got to do that because Home Depot was on the Indian side of the boundary, right? And so pretty fascinating when you talk about governance and zoning and public process. And uh, that was really my launch into the private sector. So I'm going to pause there and I don't know, I've got kind of the second half of the story. Do yeah. you want me to keep going yeah. or you want well, to jump in? I can't help but be inspired by, you know, working with all these cities and all these different backgrounds probably really crafted the way you looked at deals, you know, looking for opportunities that you weren't expected to be presented to you, but that you're you know, breaking rules to unlock opportunity. Totally. You know, my first meeting with Stan Kroenke when we were, when I was pitching him the River Mile deal was, he said, I've made the most money in my career on entitlement deals, not even shoveling the ground, just taking a piece of dirt, adding value. It, adding value to it through the entitlement process. And that's been my career path as well. Most of my most lucrative deals have been that. But yeah, it gives you a different lens for sure. And it's fascinating because entitlements are... They're definitely an art, not a science, right? It's shifting sands all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's what I find interesting about it. Yeah, I love that. You know, that was an incredible intro into the history. I can't help but think your insights into what, what happened in Vancouver, you have to look at Denver as a similar catalytic ground for opportunity and growth. Yeah, I mean, looking at the Elitch's site when I moved here in 1998, I didn't know anyone when I moved here. So I had a lot of free time driving around looking at real estate. And so seeing that 62 acre site right downtown of a major U.S. city with a mile of riverfront was just staggering, totally mm. different lens that I was looking at it through. And yeah, I, that's where this, and we'll get into it a little bit, but that's where my kind of lens of vertical development comes in, right? If you look around Denver, I think we've been pretty wasteful in our land use, really, because we could be, quite frankly, we have a lot of planes out to the east and south and north of us. And so, but as a city matures, like Vancouver did, I think we need to be less wasteful with our land, right? And that's where that verticality comes in. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see that in some slides coming up. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. When, when you think about verticality affecting a metro district, how do you look at the durability of submarkets, like in Colorado and just nationally in general? What do you mean durability? Well, like, do you see... Like, do you see the submarkets doing really well, like the suburban markets, the urban edge, or do you see the city really kind of paving the way moving forward? Tricky time to ask a question, right? We're just yeah. coming out of COVID. Downtowns are deserted. Mm. I'm downtown a lot. I, they say we're at 50%. It feels more like 30%. I'm a big believer in cities, personally. I'm a big believer in humans being very social, 
and we love the interaction. I think we're at a moment in time where some of the smaller markets and suburbs are thriving, but I think downtown cores are coming back. Mm -hmm. I think it's an exciting time to be on the urban edge, uh, on the metro edge, like like the River Mile, because so many issues that we're having in the city core just come from poor planning and poor entitlement and planning processes. So to be able to work ground up right now, you're seeing a lot of success in Cherry Creek. I think you'll see a lot of success at River Mile where you can do things to meet contemporary audience versus maybe trends that were happening in the 80s, which were drive to town, drive to the suburbs. Totally. You can capture this whole new audience going totally. forward. Yeah, I hope so. That's my hope. I mean, we've got a big bet on the return of downtown, yeah. so I'm all in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk, talking about your career path and and coming from a non-traditional sense, can you speak to two issues? What have been a big unexpected win in your career? And then I love your setback stories. What's what's a good setback story? Wins. Wins, wins. I think what is what has created my biggest wins have just been an openness to exploring new things, pulling up stakes, moving somewhere, doing something different. You know, I have I've had two big moves in my life. One was Denver in 98, moving down here, not knowing a single person, trying to kind of create myself down here. And then the second was in 06, I moved to the Bahamas, ran a large real estate holding and development company down there for a limited partner of mine. And I think um, that gave me different experiences and really opened my eyes and, and really kind of put me in positions that I think if I was more stayed, I wouldn't have had access to, if that makes yeah. sense. Just different deals in different markets, in different cities, in different environments, in different cultures. And quite frankly, that's what gets me excited. I didn't get into this business to make money, per se. I'd, I get excited, and we'll look at some projects here, just doing things differently, looking things, looking at things through a different lens, and that's what gets me excited. And that's what travel does for mm -hmm. me. That's what different cultures do for me. And you're a big traveler. You're you're obsessed with breaking into, obsessed. you know, there, new There are regions. no new ideas. You yeah. need to just go hunt that's them right. down in the world and find them for sure. Biggest fails, biggest challenges. I don't know. Every deal we do, I say in the office, I learned three or four new things on every deal. And I've been doing this quite a while. And so I, I'm hoping I'm going to run out of learning things soon. But you just hope that one of those things doesn't kill your project, right? And so there's been a lot of bumps in the road, I say, as developers. We're problem solvers, first and mm -hmm. foremost. So there's no shortage of pro problems. I think the biggest lesson that I have to avoiding failure is picking your partners. Know who your partners are. Know how they're going to behave. It's all good when the times are good, right? Everyone's fat and happy. We've been in a bull market for 10 years. Everything's been going great. But you don't know who your partners are until the bullets start to fly. And I learned that lesson a couple of times, yeah. a couple of different ways. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. learn it again. Yeah. My current partners, we've known each other since we were 20 up in Vancouver. So we know whose jersey each other's wearing and how it's going to go. And so that's kind of my big, my big piece of advice. Know your partners. Mm -hmm. So it's great advice. You want to, you want to jump yeah. into some of these slides here? Yeah. So most people know our firm for the River Mile and Elitch's. We operate in probably three separate buckets. We run the amusement park and own it and uh, are obviously developing the River Mile. That's one bucket. The other bucket is we have a private REIT we formed in Canada that raises equity for our shopping center acquisition strategy across the mostly Western U.S. We're moving a little bit more eastward now. That's why I have a beautiful photo of this 
open air retail center. Don't call it a strip center, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third is urban mixed use, which is really my passion. Just smaller projects, infill, well-located, well-executed. And I have a passion for those, I think, because growing up, I didn't have any money. When I moved to Denver, I didn't have any money. And those were the only projects that I could do. I remember I bought my first house in five points for $60,000. Right. I mean, yeah. What? Yeah. What, what's that trading at right now? I don't even know. <laughs> 500, 600. Yeah. And so I have this passion and for these niche little infill projects. And I really think it's budget based, but. And so those are the three buckets. And the reason why I have this slide of this not attractive shopping center up here is sometimes we all need to do things as a means to an end, right? We buy a lot of shopping centers. We're very retail focused, have a lot of retail experience, but personally, it's not where my passion is. But this is what I was doing when I was moving to Denver. We were developing, developing a lot of Safeways, King Supers, open air shopping centers, mostly suburban. And I, li I look at this and it's always a good reminder that where you want to finish is ne not necessarily where you have to start, right? So do what you need to do. Um, this is a mixed-use town center I developed down in the Bahamas when I was down there. I think my biggest takeaway from the Bahamas is <clears throat> they don't love white people in the Bahamas if you're a native Bahamian, and they don't like foreigners. And so I showed up as a white foreigner I felt like I had two strikes against me. I was just up at the plate trying to foul off pitches. But that's what I mean about growth opportunities, right? Dropping yourself in the deep end, whether it's geographically, whether it's politically, whether it's culturally, and trying to figure your way through that. And that, for the Bahamas, was it in a nutshell hmm. for me. More retail. Um, we'll spin through these. Um, this is my office up in Lohi, right in front of Postino. For those of you who know the site, I love projects like this. Like I geek out on projects like this as you do as well, yeah, Matt, I yeah. know, because this was a remnant piece of land that it was a 3,400 square foot, perfect triangle encumbered by a billboard. And how do we build something cool on this? We're, we have a firmly anti-stucco ethos in our shop. And so cladding is very important to us. And, and how do we create something there that I think the neighborhood can be mm -hmm. proud of? Because I think a lot of developers go What's amazing about this site is how it sat there forever. And then yeah. you guys came with the solution. And I love the integration of the advertising on the outside. And it was like, you know, took something and turned into something exceptional. Yeah, but it takes some thought, right? It's definitely not a commodity product that we're yeah. creating there. Down to my house. I built this house up in Lohi 10 years ago. Once again, pretty unorthodox. And this is what I'm passionate about. I'm saying, how do we do things differently? And I get so excited. And it's a riddle, right? I mean, if it was easy, we'd have more of this. Yeah. But it's super hard to make it pencil, but that's the love of the challenge. What's interesting is is the pressure and the challenge usually make the project better. It's annoying to the process, but totally. otherwise you wouldn't push yourself. Totally. Another challenging site. I don't know, Brooke, you might know how big this site is. Is it 4,000 feet? 4,200 feet, maybe? Yeah, it's a 4,000 square foot site in Loho, Lohi that once again sat empty. We picked it up. This is a Sonder Hotel, a 41-room hotel that we're just completing and delivering on next month. Mm. Once again, a remnant, an orphan piece of land that required a thoughtful solution. Once again, no stucco on it. Hopefully accretive to the neighborhood because it's a block from my house. Another orphan site. This is 20th and Chestnut, Caddy Corner to the King Supers. Down in Union Station. Nick Beam's been helping us with this challenging site. Mortensen took a run at it. 
failed with the neighborhood and uh, we picked it up kind of on the rebound. Very challenged, small 10,000 foot site-ish, I'm thinking. Encumbered by a ton of utilities. It's in the Coorsfield view plane. But once again, you know, we're very proud of a creative design, we think, all brick exterior. I think it's going to be a very attractive, yeah. attractive building. 46 and Tennyson, multifamily, all brick again. Beautiful. Very important corner. If anyone had gone to Local 46, a beloved tavern that we unfortunately had to tear down to make way for this. But yeah, I, I just show those just because that's my passion. Just we'll never be a commodity developer. We'll never be a four over one stucco white vinyl window developer. It's not where my passion lies. And it's taken me a long time to get to this point in my career. And I try to never lose sight of how fortunate I am to be able to work on projects that I have passion for. And it wasn't always like that. I was doing open air shopping centers. I was doing 200 acre master plan subdivisions in the Northeast of Denver. And uh, I think the takeaway is patience, right? Have patience, allow yourself to learn your craft, but really never lose sight of what is your passion. People come and meet with me and say, I want to get into commercial real estate. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty big field. Like, what do you want to be doing, right? Really be aware of what that passion is and drive towards it, but also give yourself that patience that it takes time. Love that all of your projects now have a why behind them. And that's like almost step one for you versus a what and like, what can you yield and what can this site bear? But now it's like, if it doesn't have a why, it's not really a project in your mind. Like you're not going to spend your time without a why. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, Brad Buchanan, the ex-planning director in Denver, really ingrained that in me when I went to meet with him on the River Mall project. I think I told you this story. He said, that's cool. You've got the site, 62 acres. Awesome. But why? Like, why do you want to create what you want to create? And he said to me, I get so sick of developers coming into my office and I ask them why. And they say something like, oh, because I own this piece of land and I've always wanted to build a hotel. Probably completely devoid from context, <laughs> right? What, to me, it's like you say, it's almost the reverse. What does this site want to be, right? Not the other way around. Not right. What do I want this site to be? Yeah. And like I said, feel very lucky to be at that point in my career that I get to do that because not everyone gets to do that. And again, it's finding good partners that want to, you know, support you and support that, that why vision. Totally. Yeah. Cause why oftentimes costs more money. Yeah. Yeah. And the yield gets smaller, doesn't it, Brick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it was a 1970 Cougar XR7 so, convertible. So the question, the question was, how do you, how do you repurpose commercial product post COVID? Has anyone tried to do that yet in this room? Has anyone looked well, at that? Only 15, 10, 15% work. <laughs> I mean, it is incredibly challenging, right? It sounds like you might know a little bit about it. Yeah. Everything from floor plate size to column spacing yeah. and on the architectural side to systems depth to new environmental regulations that are coming into play right so hard to retrofit i we may have regulated ourselves into a corner on yeah. that in denver you know and it comes back to zoning too and it, and it probably comes back to failing of previous guards you know you look at europe and you look at their floor plate depths in commercial office and it easily is transferable to yeah. residential so some wisdom we should move forward with if you want to hold an asset how do you you know, position it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I worry for the old office stock in Denver for sure. I mean, our largest buildings were built in the eighties, right? 
and they're dinosaurs. Right yeah. Now, and I worry for them. If you've got a 10 or 12 story, sure, you could knock it down. I'm not sure what the economics look like at 50 stories. Yeah. Cubicle farms. Yeah. Yeah. You want to share some River Mile updates and just yeah. Rubesco updates? Yeah, for sure. River Mile, you know, another, another random site, right? This is Meow Wolf, another triangle site. We, we joke in my office that we only develop on triangular shaped sites. <laughs> we, we want to make it really hard and yeah. inefficient, right? But yeah. also, you know, this building, you know, even when you think you're really smart, you've been around this business a long time. This business will show you often how not smart you are. I mean, I always thought that this was going to be the last site to develop in the River Mile. It's between viaducts. It's a 12,000 square foot site. It's the ass end of the site. It's completely everything working against it. And it turns out to be the first site to develop. But we were passionate about this project. Number one, because it's Meow Wolf and there's such a great organization and also very cutting edge. But also the site was massively challenge, challenging to us. And, um, I get great, like I said, a couple of times, I get great satisfaction from conquering those challenges. You guys have probably seen a lot of these slides. There's some new ones in here, but to be honest, I'm getting tired of talking about the River Mile. I want to start building it. <laughs> um, we've been working on it for seven years now. We're still working through entitlements with the city, believe it or not. Six or seven years later, we're designing on-site infrastructure. We're perfecting our river renovation designs right now. We're hoping to get into the river. Maybe as soon as uh, this July or August, we'll see, but it's been a heavy lift. This is just a shot of the river in a post-renovation condition, narrowing it, deepening it, meandering it, add a lot of natural vegetation, add a lot of fish habitat to it. I Even I fully don't grasp, I think, the impact that this river renovation is going to have on downtown Denver. I mean, the river right now is not a place we want to be generally, and I think once we're done with it, regardless of what happens on the River Mile site and the buildings and the amenities, just from a pure public amenity standpoint, this is going to be a game changer for this city. I think you all know about the River Mile, high density. You'll see the images here, highly amenitized, a lot of open space. We wrote our own zoning for the site um, because we couldn't find zoning in the then Denver, Denver zoning code that worked for us. So think smaller floor plates, think tower spacing to allow for porosity of light of wind think very tall we have no height limits in the river mile i mean if we look around i joke with our form-based zoning code in denver that you have you have four building choices you have a cmx3 you have a cmx5 you have a cmx8 or you have 12 yeah pick one right uh, and the river mile is not that it'll be a much much more big city diverse vertical field um and Matt's designed a first tower for us. We just need to figure out how to yeah. afford to build it. Yeah, it's it's maybe like 60 stories and maybe a little too tall right now. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> right now. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but also, and there's some examples. Going back to our first slide, looking at Vancouver, right? A lot of familiarity there. A lot of similarity with the architectural style. And what, what really separates this, I think, is the amount of public open space. And, and th this is where your family wants to live and where you can have daycare and you can have two working professionals. And it's just, it's meant to flip Denver on its head, which is just a strict grid with very little green open space. Yeah, the open space is one thing for sure, but it's also thinking back to my time in 86, watching that World's Fair site transition and really noticing what the game changers in the evolution of that development were. Mm -hmm. The world changed when a grocery store opened. The world changed again when a preschool opened, right? 
Saturday and Sunday mornings used to be like hungover bros going home after a night out to young couples pushing strollers through a downtown core. And I think that's what the River Mile is, is really trying to make a downtown for everyone. I think Denver's done a great job of building downtown for pretty one thin demographic. If mm-hmm. you're pick a number 23 to 30 and you're rolling into Denver, just finished college, I think downtown Denver was built for you. Pretty sure it wasn't built for kids and families and preschools yet. So that's kind of what the River Mile is, aside from the open space as well. It's taking what you might see in a greenfield development, such as Stapleton slash Central Park. Why do families want to be there, right? Parks, open space, schools, safety. Proximity. Proximity. And it's trying to translate that into an urban vertical kind of form, which... Hopefully, if we give ourselves enough time, Denver will get there. And I think there's great precedence. You know, you look at the blank site locations, you know, Cherry Creek and Rhino, and you've seen how much investment has been there. And these are demographics, you know, particularly Rhino, where it's it's a younger demographic that is being called to. But this to support like a full spectrum of, you know, human experience is going to be, it's going to meet the market where it's currently not at. And that's what's so exciting. That's when a city really matures, you know, when you have this great open space and restaurants and you're like, I'm going to live my whole life here. That's like what Chicago does. That's what New York does. Yeah. I'll get to you in one second. I just got one comment about that. Talk about traveling and getting getting ideas from different places. I was up in Toronto with our architects and we met with the ex-planning director up there. And she said, we're talking about how do you integrate families into a downtown core. Vancouver's done a good job of it. Toronto's done a good job of it. And she said, the biggest challenge was strollers. What do you do with a stroller if you live in a condo? I said, I don't know. I don't have kids. I'm probably not the right focus group for this. But she said, people had to put them in bathtubs. You bring your stroller in, you have to put it in the bathtub. You have to take it out. You'd have to clean out the bathtub if you want to battle. And so they had a nine person department on how do we adapt vertical condo living and make it more compatible for families. And it's really simple things. But unless you're focused on it, it's never, ever going to happen. Yeah. You mean in terms of the overall region? Yeah, I think we're going to, I mean, it's changed recently, right? We had massive in-migration for the last 10 years, and then that's flatlined for now. We've talked about a million people over the next 10 years. That was on the old trajectory, I'll call it. But if you, if, if you extend that out to reflect current conditions, Maybe it's 15 years, a million people over the next 15 or 20 years. I think the River Mile is a 20 to 25 year build out. And so if we're adding 12 to 15,000 people on the River Mile site, people think that's a lot in the context of adding a million people to the metro. It's kind of a drop in the bucket, mm-hmm. really. So I think if we're really going to accommodate a million more people, we need to change our form of development or else people are going to be driving in from Pickett. Right. Like mm-hmm. North of Fort Collins, yeah. south of Colorado Springs. I don't know. Do you think the, the slow down in, in migration is due largely just to inventory in, in downtown Denver? I think there's a couple of things. I think we've become our own worst enemy in terms of affordability. Yeah. You know, we used to be on a kind of affordability scale with Salt Lake, with Phoenix, with Dallas. If you look at where we are compared to those metros today, every time I go to Salt Lake, I drive south on the highway and I see all the California 
tech companies that should be in Denver, but they're not. They're in Salt Lake because of cost of living. So I think that's a massive challenge for us. I think obviously COVID, we've seen um, out-migration from major cities and the growth of secondary and tertiary markets. We're invested, example, Flagstaff. We got into Bozeman very early. Mm. Both of those markets have exploded. That's really caused us to focus on secondary and tertiary markets that have affordability and great livability. Livability is key. Which are two things that Denver used to have, right? And so I worry for that. I'd also add schools to that list. Yep. For so, sure. so the question is, you know, how do you, how do you address homelessness and crime in any major city and then just affordability in general? And what, what, maybe what cities are doing it really well? Yeah. So I'm paying a lot of attention to the upcoming elections. I'd urge you all to pay a lot of attention to those. It's a very important time. You know, Michael's been in power for 12 years. It's on his way out. I think it's time for some change and some new ideas around that, around homelessness. It's funny you mentioned that. You talk about the private developer side. As we've been pitching office, major office tenants for the River Mile, within their first three questions is, will you be able to, because you're private, will you be able to control the homelessness and crime better? And I think we will. A lot of our streets will be city-dedicated streets, but we will maintain the right to augment security on those streets. And I think about Riverfront Park, for example, same condition obviously less density, but I think they do a really good job of controlling homelessness because they have augmented services. Cherry Creek, right? Their BID has <laughs> augmented services. I think in the short term, that's the answer. But I think as a North American community, we need to solve the problem of homelessness because we're on the wrong trajectory. And I think that can only be solved at the government level. And I could go on for an hour about yeah. that, so I won't. Yeah. Great. Great qu- question, Richard. Yeah. Reese, any, any other thoughts on just pipeline projects in the metro Yeah, it's area? choppy time, right? Yeah. Like, we struggle. For those of you who don't know Brooke, you introduce yourself to Brooke. She uh, works on the acquisition side for us. So we're underwriting deals constantly. It's choppy right now. We all know what rates have done. We all know, all know what construction price isn't done. So right now, to be honest, it's hard for me to be really bullish. Mm-hmm. I'd be lying if I was saying, go all in on, I don't know, manufacturing. Yeah. You know? But it's really wait and see. The way I describe it is just, I think we're all waiting for a new normal, right? Whatever that new normal is, if that means 7% construction debt, great. We can, we can adapt to that, right? Land values are going to fall. Construction pricing is going to fall. And we'll get to a new equilibrium where pro forma start to work. Right now, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a waiting game, really. I wish I had better news. Good to be honest, though. <laughs> I yeah. think. I don't know. Yeah. Just a couple, how about softball questions and we'll go into, we'll go into Q and A, you know, what, what keeps you fresh? Like what, what is a mandatory lifestyle thing that you do travel. outside? Yeah. Travel hundred percent. doesn't matter where. And what I do is when I travel is like super conscious of experiencing spaces. doesn't matter what that space is. It could be a sidewalk. It could be a square. It could be a building lobby, but what makes me feel good or bad? What is driving my reaction to mm. that, right? It could be anything. It could be the architecture. It could be the urban planning. It could be the landscape. It could be whatever. Like I joked, like there are no new ideas, right? Just get out in the world and steal the best ones you can and bring them back home and execute on them. Uh, but yeah, travel, just different cultures. We get very myopic here. And that's one of my frustrations about Denver is we have a very myopic view. I'm dealing with city bureaucrats who are proving 
plans for the River Mile once in a generation development who have never traveled and never been outside Denver. And so you're trying to get them excited. And without that breadth of experience, I think it's really hard to do good developments. How about a closing question? I've asked you this before, but what would be your dream project if, you know, everything was cleared off the table and you could just deliver something unencumbered? Oh man, I've been so lucky. I have so many projects that for me are dreams, right? Whether it's from my house or my office building or these quirky little deals to the Bahamas. I mean, who gets to do a river mile, right? Who gets to own an amusement park and do the river mile? I've been, who does a meow wolf, right? Already, I feel like I've had this dream career. I I think the way to answer that is, is my, one of my favorite projects in Denver is rock drill. And we've talked about this, I think, I don't know if you guys know rock drill, but I love it because it has what the river mile doesn't have, which is existing historical fabric on it. And that's one of my biggest challenges with the river mile is not having that to build around and play off of and juxtapose the old and the new. So a project like rock drill would probably be a dream project. Cool. It's fun to have existing ingredients, you know, it's what really pushes you. hundred percent. The white paper is the hardest design exercise there is. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Reese, it's a privilege to have you uh, join us today for the February spotlight. Everyone, round of applause for Reese. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to the NAF Colorado Developing Leadership Podcast. Also, please visit the NAF Colorado website and social media pages for updates on our next in-person event.